Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What? I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Episode 5, Anglo-Saxon Paganism. I want to be upfront with you. I'm not going to waste your time by building a web of half-truths or misrepresentations. I want to focus on what we can actually say about pre-Christian Anglo-Saxon beliefs. And it is unavoidably the case that there is very little we can say with any confidence. All of those people saying that they offer a full view of Anglo-Saxon paganism do so based on very flimsy foundations, and their resulting image is in no way historically reliable. I also want to be clear. If being loose with the evidence doesn't bother you, then that's fine. There is a long tradition of Western occult and magical groups iterating on what they believe the evidence to be, even when it goes far beyond any basis in historical fact. The best examples that come to mind of it done in a way that is effective but also self-conscious are John Michael Greer's Druidry Handbook and Aidan Kelly's Inventing Witchcraft. My issue is when people attempt to take this approach and present it as history. Undeniably, the increasing prominence of movements like Wicca and Druidry has led to some blurring of the line between ancient and modern paganism in the popular imagination. So first of all, before touching on the Anglo-Saxons themselves, I want to discuss what I call the problem of paganism, which will let you know what I mean and what I don't mean when I talk about paganism in this episode. Then I will move on to the evidence often wheeled out for Anglo-Saxon paganism itself, and discuss it from a critical perspective of someone who wants to know what pre-Christian beliefs and practices could be found among the Anglo-Saxons. First things first though, the term paganism is somewhat misleading since it implies a unified theological system or related systems in the same way that we could use Christian to refer to all those who base their beliefs on the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. The archaeological evidence from places such as Viking Age Scandinavia indicate that there was no unified religious culture prior to the coming of Christianity. We can tell this due to the incredible diversity of ritual objects and cultic sites across Scandinavia. Christianity seemingly caused something of a unification of iconography. For example, the proliferation of Mjolnir pendants, but this was a post-Christian occurrence. There is also evidence for religious change in this region prior to the arrival of Christianity. For example, on the Swedish island of Gotland, around 700, a tradition of abstract solar imagery in memorial stones is replaced by imagery of longships and a rider on an eight-legged horse, which seemed to suggest the growing influence of Norse mythology over what may have been an indigenous mythology. Thus, paganism was not historically a unified faith, and treating it as such is inherently misleading. Similarly, the modern popular concept of paganism has little to do with ancient pre-Christian practices. Instead, the beliefs that lie at its root are inseparable from late 19th century British occultism and romanticism, both of which contributed to its focus on magic and a reverence for nature. 
As you may have guessed from this, I equate the emergence of current popular image of paganism with the development of Gerald Gardner's Wicca. I know that some neo-pagans will object to this use of Wicca as a starting point for modern paganism, since they see it as a historical, while their own practices are legitimate. But my logic for framing discussion in this way is that Gardnerian Wicca was the first movement to explicitly define itself as a continuation of ancient paganism. See, for example, Gardner's first book on Wicca, Witchcraft Today, published in 1954. Like it or not, the neo-pagan movement would not be possible without Wicca, and while many groups have sought to distance themselves from it, the simple fact is that they all owe some debt to Gardner, be it a direct one or an indirect one. But back to the theory of modern paganism. Magic and reverence for nature are the two pillars at the core of modern paganism, but they are entirely modern, and have little to do with the kind of historical paganism that I will be focusing on in this episode. Ritual, specifically sacrifice, is central to all Indo-European pre-Christian customs, as can be seen in Rome, Greece, and Vedic India, where sacrifice was the chief act of piety meant to ensure continued cosmic order. This is very different from the modern views of magic, which, to the extent that they can be easily summarised, align with the quote from Alistair Crowley, that magic is the science and art of causing change to occur in conformity with will. It is very different, then, from the ancient ideas of sacrifice, which, while they could be done with the aim of achieving a particular end, were most often presented as a basic requirement for civil and spiritual order, with magic being its own branch of practice that was often frowned upon. The reverence for nature is also the product of a deep sense among the British Romantics that the Industrial Revolution destroyed something essential to us when it separated man from the land. In this view, the animism or pantheism of an idealised pagan past is immensely appealing to those who, like the first modern pagans, saw in Christian modernity a severing from the spiritual vitality of nature. The neo-pagan emphasis on nature, then, is thoroughly dependent on a modern situation, and if we look to the ancient world, we are just as likely to find nature treated as a source for danger, or even of evil, than of something good. The traces of animism and pantheism are best understood not as reverence for nature, but as the sense of participation with a world that exists beyond us, as described by writers like Owen Barfield, John Moriarty, Paul Kingsnorth, and Martin Shaw. All of these writers agree that this participation is not so much pagan as it is broadly mythological, Moderns, they argue, have lost that sense of participation in an objective reality, and an ahistorical reverence for nature is a weak substitute for the drink that we find in full strength, in Ovid, Homer, the Vedas, and also in the Bible, all of which situate the human experience within a natural order that is, in essence, beyond humanity. My reason for focusing on this issue of modern paganism before we've even talked about Anglo-Saxon paganism is that I want to bring to your attention the problem of the associations we as Westerners now have with the word pagan. The old associations of country bumpkin or devil worshipper have left the mainstream, and a new one is dominant. But this one is just as problematic as those old ones were, and I want to make it very clear that when I talk about paganism, I do not mean a modern post-Wiccan definition of the word. Truthfully, I'm using it mainly for convenience to refer to pre-Christian beliefs and practices. Hi listeners, I wanted to take a second to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, restaurant-quality, and dietitian approved and it's all ready to go in two minutes with minimal meal prep. I've had some fantastic meals like butter chicken and tomato risotto with Factor, 
And I've got to say, I've been extremely impressed with all of them. They genuinely are restaurant quality. You'll get over 35 different options to choose from every week if you try out Factor, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, with pancakes, smoothies, and more, there's over 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and ready to go throughout the day. Factor also works around your schedule. You can order as little or as much as you need each week, and they even let you reschedule deliveries any time of when those unexpected somethings happen to pop up. And to top it all off, Factor is cheaper than ordering takeout, so it really is a smart move to try it out. Get started today and get after your goals. If you're interested in trying Factor, head to factormeals.com slash anglo50 and use code anglo50 to get 50% off. That's code anglo50 at factormeals.com slash anglo50 to get 50% off. So with the problem of paganism generally out of the way, let's move towards Anglo-Saxon paganism in particular. The evidence for this is extremely limited and open to a great deal of debate. This is where some videos will throw up a picture of an angry neckbeard coming in to quash the hopes of people wanting lots of information on Anglo-Saxon paganism. While that may be a good way to poison the well, it doesn't change the fact that there is very little evidence for pre-Christian Anglo-Saxon beliefs and practices. Simply, anyone who says otherwise is misrepresenting the facts. A popular trend I've seen is to rely heavily on Old Norse material, particularly the prose and poetic Eddas. This is a deeply problematic approach, though. The prose Edda was written by the Icelandic poet and lawyer Snorri Sturluson in the early 13th century. While he purports to record the beliefs of his ancestors, Snorri himself was Christian and lived in an Iceland where paganism was no longer in living memory. His main aim in the Edda was not to present an accurate image of Norse paganism, Rather, he makes it clear that his aim is for the book to be used by poets to understand kennings. Kennings being a unique feature of Old Norse poetry, in which the poet refers to a person or thing or an event by way of an obscure, usually mythological reference. In composing his Edda, Snorri sought to keep the tradition of kennings alive, a fact that itself suggests that the mythology he describes was no longer particularly well known. One of the main poetic sources Snorri used was the Poetic Edda, a collection of mythological and heroic poetry from Iceland. This certainly existed before the early 13th century when Snorri used it. Some of its poetry may even be as old as the 10th century, but it is entirely possible that the poems were built out of this older material and thus fall somewhere between the 10th and 13th centuries. Its date is extremely controversial, and even if we could say with certainty that it was genuinely pagan, by its nature, Old Norse poetry is extremely obscure, so it's hard to build any sense of pagan beliefs from it. Also, since there is no evidence to indicate that paganism looked the same everywhere in Viking Age Scandinavia, we can't rule out the possibility that even if the Poetic Edda suggests something of Icelandic paganism, there is no guarantee that it reflects Norse paganism more generally, or for that matter, that it is anything but distantly related to Anglo-Saxon paganism. The one part of Anglo-Saxon paganism we can say we know with certainty, the name of four deities, does indicate some kinship between Anglo-Saxon mythology and mythologies of other Germanic peoples. Tiu, Woden, Thunor, and Frigg, who gave their names to Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday respectively, are clearly related linguistically to the gods better known from the Old Norse tradition as Tyr, Odin, Thor, and Frigg. These same names occur in place names across England, such as Tizo, 
Wensbury and Thundersley, names that are often suggested to refer to local shrines to the deities named, although more on this later. Due to the clear connection, many writers on Anglo-Saxon paganism use Old Norse mythology to add meat to the bones. The result is a system in which Woden is Odin, and Thunor is Thor, but as should be apparent based on what I've said so far, there's really no reason to think that this was the case. The Anglo-Saxons separated from the continental Germans several centuries before Old Norse mythology was in any way codified. The likelihood that a devotee of Woden would understand him in the same way as a later devotee of Odin is slim, since mythology is not static, and we know nothing of the mythology associated with Woden. There are only three surviving references to Woden in Old English literature. One is referenced by Alfred of Eensham in the early 11th century to the Danes worshipping Odin, who the English's ancestors, he claims, called Woden. The second comes from the poem Maxims One, a collection of wise sayings rendered in verse which survives in the late 10th century Exeter book. In this poem, Woden is called the fashioner of idols and is contrasted with God who created all things. The third and most peculiar reference to Woden comes from a text called the Nine Herbs Charm. This one offers the closest thing we have to a mythological story about Woden. The charm, which lists nine healing herbs, presents the following information. Quote, the worm comes creeping, tearing into the man. Then Woden took up nine glorious boughs. Striking then the serpent, it flew into nine pieces. There the apple and the venom were destroyed, so that it never wished to bring down your house. Time and fennel, a mighty powerful pair, the wise lord shaped these herbs, holy in heaven, those he hung up, set up and sent down into the seven worlds, for the wretched and the blessed, as cure for all. End quote. A lot has been made of this, Woden and the repetition of the number nine, as well as the apparent link of the snake with Jormungandr, the Mythgard serpent, all have obvious links to Old Norse mythology and to its nine worlds. Similarly, the reference to a lord and the hanging in the heavens has on several occasions been linked to Odin sacrificing himself on Yggdrasil. The reference after that to the seven worlds has also been taken to indicate that where the Norse believed in nine worlds, traditional Anglo-Saxon cosmology held there to be seven. This doesn't accurately reflect what the Old English says though, since in fact it doesn't seem to be the Lord himself who is hanging, and the reference to seven worlds could also be read as a reference to the seven heavens, described in various apocryphal Christian texts that were widely popular in Anglo-Saxon England. As for the section about Woden and the snake, we must remember that the Lachnunga, the collection of medical charms in which this one survives, was written in the 10th century. It was written after the reconquest of regions settled by the Danes during the 9th century, so it is possible that it reflects some Norse influence. This may well have been filtered through cultural memory of Woden as a force in the world, and that the Norse called Odin, but it is likely that whoever wrote the charm was not pagan. Rather, they were apparently as influenced by Christianity, so there is really no reason to think that the Nine Herbs charm gives us any reliable information about beliefs about Woden among the pre-Christian Anglo-Saxons, or Anglo-Saxon paganism more generally. The name Woden does actually appear elsewhere in the Anglo-Saxon literary corpus, but chiefly as a royal ancestor. As Bede said in his account of the arrival of Hengist and Horsa, Woden was regarded as the ancestor of many Saxon kings.
Thus, there are two different versions of Woden surviving in the Anglo-Saxon literature. One, as a royal ancestor, this is a Woden transformed into a mythological hero. On the other hand, is a more demonic Woden, a fashioner of idols, who was understood to be in some way cognate with the Old Norse Odin. It's not easy to reconcile these two images. Possibly they are two different responses to an ancestral memory of paganism. But interesting as they are, neither really has much to do with genuine pre-Christian beliefs about Woden. For Anglo-Saxon paganism more generally, Lachnunga contains another charm often wheeled out in discussions of the topic. The charm against a sudden stitch, or as it's called in Old English, with Fördstitcher. The charm contains a lot of references to the supernatural, such as elves and witches, but also, most importantly, a reference to a group of beings called Essa. This word is the plural form of the Old English os, meaning god. Os is related to the Old Norse aus, the plural of which is Isir. Thus, Essa is the Old English equivalent of Isir, the word for the pantheon of Old Norse deities. Therefore, it is suggested the Essa are the gods of the pagan Anglo-Saxons. Karen Jolly suggests that with Firstiger is not obviously Christian, but what this overlooks is the role that the Essa play in the charm. They are not invoked, as some have suggested, rather they are cast as entities who cause sickness, just as the elves and the witches are. In this, the worldview of the charm is entirely consistent with that found in other, more obviously Christian charms, in which malevolent spiritual forces operate in the world, causing sickness and suffering that only God and the natural qualities he gave to various plants can heal. In some places, these forces are identified as elves or witches, in others they are called dwarves, Elsewhere they are demons, and in this case they are the Essa. Thus, far from being obviously non-Christian, the charm is actually entirely consistent with the trend seen elsewhere for writers to use names taken from their cultural memory, along with those taken from Christianity, to refer to the same unseen forces. So while Essa may be a term for a pantheon of gods like the Aesir, the charm is not pagan, and in fact is better understood as a Christian text, and once again, we are forced to put this written source for Anglo-Saxon paganism to one side. Since while it can tell us a little bit more than the Nine Herbs charm, it is still deeply imbued with a Christian worldview, and thus is of limited use to reconstruct paganism. The last bit of written evidence I want to talk about is Bede's On the Reckoning of Time, in particular his references to pagan festivals. In particular, he offers us the name of two deities, Hreda and Eostra. He tells us that in Hredmonath, which identifies with March, the pagan Anglo-Saxons are made sacrifices to a goddess he names Redda, which has been supposed to be a form of the name Hreda. The next month, so April, he identifies as Eostra Monath, in which the pagans would sacrifice to the goddess Eostra. For many centuries, Bede was the only source for either of these two deities, and it was thought that they were entirely of his own creation. However, a discovery near Morkenhaf in Germany in 1958 of over 150 inscriptions from the 2nd century seems to suggest that Bede may not have invented Eostra. The inscriptions were to goddesses of a people called the Austriates. The root of their name, Austri, which is also used in several personal names in the inscriptions, if it is of Germanic origin, may be cognate with Eostra, and thus may offer independent evidence for the existence of a goddess by this name. It's important to remember, though, that we know very little about these Austriates, and it is entirely possible that they have no connection to Eostra, 
and consequently that we are left with only Bede's account. In total, Bede tells us of three supposedly pagan dates, Hredmonath, Eostromonath, and a third date apparently coincidental with Christmas Eve called Modranicht, which translates as Mother's Night, which Bede speculates may derive from ceremonies performed on that night. All of this is very interesting, but it must be taken with caution. Bede was writing in the 8th century, and he, as far as we know, never left his monastery of Monk Wermuth Jarrow, so he almost certainly did not know much about pagans, and we have no way of telling how he got his information. It's possible that the names Hreda and Eostra are based on Bede's speculations about the names of the months, causing him to posit the existence of deities for whom there is no other evidence. If Bede was drawing on reliable material, though, this has major implications for those who seek to use Old Norse material to reconstruct Anglo-Saxon beliefs, since neither Hreda nor Eostra have any parallel in Old Norse myth. Then, there being real goddesses would suggest that Anglo-Saxon paganism had a distinct pantheon, which would throw a crowbar into attempts to map Old Norse stories and cosmology onto Anglo-Saxon England. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. I know it seems like I've just discarded all of the written evidence that might help us get a sense of Anglo-Saxon paganism, and that is because there really is no pagan Old English literature. The Anglo-Saxon intelligentsia was seemingly deeply uninterested in the beliefs of their pre-Christian ancestors. They did of course recognise that their ancestors were not Christian, but they tended to treat this with discomfort when they talked about it at all. In the last episode, recall how Bede removed Gildas's reference to the prophecy of a soothsayer when explaining the migration of the Anglo-Saxons' ancestors. Similarly, in Beowulf, the religious attitudes of the ancient Danes, as exemplified in the speech given by Hrothgar after Beowulf defeats Grendel's mother, is one of basic monotheism, while the sacrifices made by the Danes to heathen gods early in the poem out of despair at Grendel's attacks are not only roundly condemned as sinful, but are also presented as a break from the norm, in which the Danes seem to be essentially Christian, despite not knowing the details of Christian theology. Thus the poet, like Bede, seems to show some discomfort with the idea of ancient paganism, and in general, all written discussions of paganism in Anglo-Saxon sources reflect this kind of tiptoeing approach, in which all references are placed squarely in a Christian worldview. If the written evidence is not especially useful in reconstructing Anglo-Saxon paganism, then we could look to archaeological evidence. This is somewhat more compelling, but it suffers from the issue that in most cases archaeological material lacks any kind of context, by which I mean that we are forced to speculate on how people who used objects or buildings understood them, with no way of knowing whether our speculations are correct. For example, the so-called temple building at Yevering, the identification of the building as a temple is based on its orientation with ancient burial mounds, odd evidence from inside, such as two pits apparently meant to hold pillars at one end, and a pile of ox skulls found at the other end of the building. 
Since there is no evidence for regular occupation, it has been suggested that the pits held idols of deities, and the ox skulls are the remains of animal sacrifice. The Yevering building is very odd, and its identification as a temple is also based on a reference by Bede to such a temple at the royal centre of Yevering. However, this is the only Anglo-Saxon temple for which we have any archaeological evidence, and it is uncertain whether such temples were built elsewhere in England. There is evidence for what may be shrines of some kind, with the remains of small wooden structures from the early Saxon period being found on top of burial mounds. The identification of these as shrines is purely based on the lack of any other clear use for such buildings, as well as what seems to be a deep-rooted fear of such mounds in later Anglo-Saxon archaeological and written evidence, in which they emerge as places haunted by demons and the undesirable, possibly unquiet dead. If the pagan Anglo-Saxons built temples and shrines, they seem to have done so around these ancient mounds. There is some parallel for this in Scandinavia, with sites like Uppsala and Valsgerda in Sweden, being both reputedly sites of pagan ritual as well as cemeteries with prominent grave mounds. Burial evidence is somewhat more problematic. In the past, it was often asserted that burial with grave goods indicated paganism, but it is now increasingly recognised that this is not the case, and that while Christianity certainly discouraged burial with objects, the decline we see in the archaeological record of grave goods in Anglo-Saxon cemeteries seems to slightly predate the spread of Christianity. Cremation is a more probable indicator of paganism since it was more objectionable to the church, but here too it was not a universal practice among the Anglo-Saxon migrants, and thus cannot be taken as a main indicator of belief in life. The iconography of grave goods and urns has sometimes been interpreted as pagan in origin. The motif of horned warriors wielding spears, seen most prominently on the Sutton Hoo helmet and the Thinglesham belt buckle, has previously been taken as an image with pagan significance, possibly as an image of Woden. But this interpretation is far from certain for the reasons, as mentioned above, that we know very little about Woden. The interpretation of this material falls into a basic trap of assuming that an object must be either pagan or Christian. Syncretism, the practice of mixing together elements of different religions or cultures, is also a viable interpretation. The best evidence for syncretism from Anglo-Saxon England is the Frank's Casket, a small, ornately decorated box made of whalebone in the first half of the 8th century, where, on the box's front panel, we see side-by-side side depictions of the Magi's adoration of the Christ Child and an image from the legend of Wayland the Smith. An object could be interpreted in diverse ways, and there is no evidence to suggest that people shared our firm distinction between pagan and the Christian. In fact, the evidence suggests that people often would fold their older stories and beliefs into a Christian worldview, as is seen in the Old English Charms, in which elves and dwarves are presented as real forces alongside demons and witches. I reject the suggestion that such charms are in any way pagan, since in all cases they are rooted in a deeply Christian understanding of salvation and divine grace. Some scholars present Anglo-Saxon religion as a case of binary opposites, elite religion versus popular religion, with the former being that of priests and monks, and the latter being that of the masses. I dislike this characterization, since it is in its core just a way of saying, this doesn't look like Christianity as I understand it. But of course, it wouldn't, since we in the West are looking through lenses shaped by the Reformation, the Enlightenment, and modernity. While we see belief in literal demons and spiritual forces as superstitious, the New Testament is nevertheless full of stories of demonic possession, and at the very start of the Nicene Creed, it is asserted that God made all things, both visible and invisible. 
Thus, it is entirely reasonable that people who retained a belief in elves and other such beings would naturally fold them into the scheme of other entities such as demons and situate them within an essentially Christian worldview, thus stripping them of anything that can be meaningfully called pagan. Since the main texts doing this, particularly the charms, were all written by priests and monks, then the whole idea of elite and popular religion collapses, leaving us with only an admittedly slightly odd, by modern standards, form of Christianity. This leaves the hunt for Anglo-Saxon paganism at something of a dead end. Thank you for listening to this longer and more complicated episode than usual. If you can't tell, this is a topic that I find extremely interesting, and I hope you found it interesting too. As I discussed, a problem for us today is that our understanding of paganism has very little to do with genuine historical paganism. It is more indebted to the Victorian period than to anything truly ancient. This does not delegitimize neo-paganism. The occult tradition is full of valuable material that embraces its ahistorical nature, but it does indicate that we should keep neo-paganism as far from our minds as possible when talking about actual historical paganism. The meagre sources for Anglo-Saxon paganism are all difficult to use, and none of them really offer us much information about the pre-Christian beliefs of the Anglo-Saxons, since everything we have is either without context or is filtered through an essentially Christian lens. Approaches such as comparative mythology are extremely problematic, and we must always be wary of using definitions that are too binary. So, is there anything that we can meaningfully say about Anglo-Saxon paganism? We can say that the Anglo-Saxon pantheon included deities found elsewhere in the Germanic world, but that they are unlikely to have been identical to their Old Norse counterparts. It may also have included deities who were unknown to the Norse, but who were derived from the peoples of what is now Germany and the Netherlands, but that depends on whether Hreda and Eostra were genuine goddesses, and not just inventions of beads. Their ritual sites, if that is what they are, seem to have been oriented around burial mounds, much as they were in Scandinavia, and this may be related to spiritual fears of such mounds expressed in later material. They also seem to have believed in elves and dwarfs, who, when they enter into the written record, had been fully incorporated into a Christian cosmology, much as fairies were in Ireland and Scotland. Beyond this, we get into very shaky ground and must tread carefully. I know that this is unsatisfying to those who want a full sense of pre-Christian religion among the Anglo-Saxons. I would also love to have that, but the evidence just isn't there, nor is it anywhere near conclusive enough to offer that. I'll wrap this up for now though, since this is getting fairly long. There's a lot more I could talk about. I haven't even touched on things like weird, so if this is something you'd like more of, please let me know. I'd love to research more into how occultists and neo-pagans use the Anglo-Saxon past, so if the audience is there, I'll see what I can get done. But for now, thank you for listening. I am your host, Tom Kearns, and this has been the Anglo-Saxon England Podcast. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.